Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, take your seats. Um, I wonder when uh, was the last time that you thought about your death? Welcome to church, by the way. When was the last time you thought about your death? When was the last time you had a conversation with someone uh, just about the subject of death at all? Um, when did you last walk through a cemetery? Uh, my wife and I sort of enjoy doing that, reading those old headstones. Uh, take a look at this picture uh, that's going to come up in a couple of seconds uh, here. Uh, as There we go. That is Trinity Church in New York City, Lower Manhattan. And uh, the practice of having the, uh, a, a cemetery or graveyard around churches began in England and, and in Europe and in the United States somewhere around the 1700s. And there were a, a number of purposes for it, but one of them was pastoral because the pastors of the church wanted people to know and reflect on the inevitability of death. So you walk through the graveyard and you're reminded of your death. Uh, we were in Scotland several years ago, and we went to the place where, like, you know, the Buchanans come from, and uh, we, we, we saw the church, and there were a bunch of gravestones, and I, and I saw one that said, Robert R. Buchanan. I went, oh, boy. The reports of my death are gra greatly overrated. But uh, it reminds us. In fact, I think that maybe Solomon might have had something to do with this idea because he wrote... It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, because that's the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. So to put it another way, you learn a lot more by going to a funeral than you do to a party. Now, we tend to keep the subject of death and, and thinking about our own death, we, we tend to keep it at arm's length. And the way that we do that mostly is, is to, is to uh, make light of it, make humor of it. Uh, I want to quote two theologians right now. The first theologian I'm going to quote is Woody Allen. You may have heard of him. And he said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But then there's another theologian, a real one, R.C. Sproul, who said, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. And I think that's the sentiment for many of us. So the question posed to us was this question, what happens to us after we die? And I'm taking the word us in a very specific way to mean Christians. What happens to Christians after Christians die? That'll be the focus of this sermon. Now, the theologians answered this question by explaining what they have called the intermediate state. So that's really what we're going to talk about quite a bit. So in this sermon, we're going to ask five questions about this intermediate state. Why is it called the intermediate state? What is the purpose of it? Where is it? What's the nature of it? And what do we do to prepare for it? So let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word prepares us uh, for our own deaths. And while we may not like thinking about it, I hope by the end of this sermon, as we go through your scripture, that you will encourage us by the things that we hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So why is it called the intermediate state? 
Now, the first thing to, to say about this is there's not a lot of information in the Bible about the intermediate state. There's no extended teaching on the subject. It's, it's not as if Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, oh yeah, remember that question you guys asked me about the intermediate state? Well, here I go, several paragraphs. It didn't happen, although we may have wished that he did that. But what we are given instead, and I, and I think this is an important reflection on, on the idea, is a very extensive teaching on the return of Christ, the resurrection, the, and, uh, the resurrection of the dead, and judgment and rewards of believers in the glorious pictures of the new heaven and new earth. And I think that's where God wants our focus to be as we think about our own death there. In fact, in, in, uh, uh, towards the end of uh, July, maybe the first part of August, I want to actually talk about the new heavens and new earth and what we can expect. So these doctrines are taught, uh, the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection, the return of Christ. They're taught in both testaments. And this tells us that our hope, our hope is not in the intermediate state. But we do need to know about it. Our hope is in the return of Christ, the final resurrection, and the creation, uh, the new creation. Now, just like the word Trinity, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. You won't find the phrase intermediate state in the Bible anywhere. But it's, uh, it's sort of an implication of the various scriptures that we can put together to get some understanding. The intermediate state is called that because it speaks about two fixed points in history. The point of a believer's death and the point of the resurrection. Everything in between is called the intermediate state state. And uh, think about that. This is the current place where all believers, right now we can't see it, of course, it's hidden from our eyes, but this is a place where all believers, from Adam all the way to grandpa who died last night, and anybody who dies today, and anyone who dies before the return of Christ, this is where they all are together, because they have trusted in Jesus for their life and death. They are in the intermediate state and they are with Christ. And that state exists at the same time as our present state, just not in the same way. And of course, it's hidden from our eyes. So what we can conclude about the intermediate state is that there is a duration that is time bound. There will be a time when the intermediate state will come to an end and give way to all of the events we just heard about, the resurrection, the return of Christ, the resurrection of Christ as judge and king. But here's the thing to, to, that we need to remember, and that is that the intermediate state is not the ultimate destiny of God's creation. That's why it's called intermediate. It's temporary and it's transitional. So when I got to this point, I thought, well, this brings a couple of questions to my mind. And the first question is, what's it like? What's existence like in that state? And the second question is, what's the purpose of it? So to answer the first question, this may be news to some of you, and I hope it doesn't shock you, but our souls go to be with the Lord, our bodies go into the grave, and so we are disembodied souls. The first thing I thought of was Casper the Friendly Ghost, and I'm giving my age away. I get it. But it's not like that. It's not like that. We're not like ghosts floating around in the air. You'll see why in a moment. Now, this, this is kind of mind-boggling when we try to think about what existence that looks like. But let's just remember that God, in his goodness, created us a unity. He created body and soul. He didn't create a soul and put it in this evil body. 
He didn't create a body without a soul. He created something good when he created the human body and the soul. And the soul is the, uh, is the place where, where um, it, it is vital to our lives. That's where our, our mental activity goes on, emotional, spiritual life functions there. And we might say we are fearfully and wonderfully made as a unity. And in fact, at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us something about what happens to the body and the soul at death. And in, in um, uh, verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, the dust... And he's here referring to uh, how God created Adam. In Genesis 2, verse 7, God used dust and created Adam. He says, here the dust um, returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So upon death, we learn that our soul departs from our body to be with the Lord, while the soul is buried in the ground and decomposes over time. So... Our death, uh, at death, our bodies, they die physically, but our souls don't. They continue on. Um, at our last breath, the body and soul are separated from each other. And the soul goes to be with Christ in the intermediate state of heaven, and that's where all believers dwell, without physical bodies. So we don't know much about how that looks. It's a lot of speculation but we don't really know. Now, some people have tried to explain this in, in some way. It's called soul sleep. You may have heard of it. It's a very popular belief to explain this, this strange phenomenon. Uh, soul sleep basically uh, uh, says we are unconscious during this period of time. We uh, are not interactive with anybody. There's no activity at all. It's kind of like going to bed at night and going to sleep and then waking up the next morning. You're not conscious that you've been asleep until you wake up, and, and uh, so they, they, they liken it to that. Well, th they're taking this idea from a text that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 11 around the Lord's table, where they were, um, they were abusing the Lord's table. And he said, your, your abuses um, are causing judgment to come into your church, and that's why some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep. And what Paul is saying there is some of you are dead. You're di you die. It's a euphemism. And, and it's, it's natural to us when we look at people who are dead, they look like they are asleep. And that's all that Paul is saying about that. So he's not promoting some sort of soul sleep theology. Now let's ask the second question. What's the purpose? What's the purpose for the intermediate state? Well, the Lord does everything according to his incomparable wisdom guiding the way. So this isn't loss. This isn't, this isn't just something like plan B that's made up. And I conclude that there is a purpose for the intermediate state, an important purpose, and we find out what that purpose is in Revelation chapter 6. So let's uh, look at those scriptures, verses 9 through 11. There's a scene in heaven where Jesus is opening the seals of judgment, and when you come to verse 9, he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are the martyrs. These are people who have given their life uh, for the sake of the gospel and the cross of Christ. And then they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer. So we know that the intermediate state is a place of rest. 
until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. And there's the key. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we hear this plaintive cry from these souls that have been crucified, uh, 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 killed, martyred for the sake of the cross. And they're crying out to the Lord, essentially saying, oh, Lord Jesus, just wrap this whole thing up. Return to earth. Avenge the blood of your servants. Avenge your own blood. Rule and reign in majesty. And, and Jesus, in effect, turns to him and says, you know, just, just wait a little longer because, because the last martyr to join your company has not yet been killed. Now think about that. Jesus is counting all those Christians around the world every day, every year, who have been killed for the cause of the cross, and he's counting them up one at a time. And someday that last martyr will be killed, and that will trigger Jesus saying, now is the time. Now think about this. This is an amazing thought, I think. That person could be alive today somewhere in the world. And then if that person dies because of the cross, Jesus returns. All right, so the intermediate state has this purpose. Now let's ask the third question, and that is, where is it? Where is this intermediate state? Well, the short answer is with the Lord. That's the short answer. That's how, figure out how we get there. Uh, now, this, this place is a real place. It's not some ethereal, foggy, gloomy kind of place. When we read in the Old Testament about Sheol, that's the sort of sense you get. It's a, it's a sort of gloomy, kind of like today out there, cloudy, rainy, just ugh, right? It's probably really humid too, I'm sure. Not because it's hell. It's not that. But Jesus said that place is called paradise. And we have an interchange between Jesus and the thief on the cross, so we really have to thank the cross for Jesus revealing this to us. So let's look at that story um, of Jesus on the cross. Uh, so he's, he's there between two criminals, you remember. And one of the criminals who was hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Well, save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. And then the man turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, let's think about that for a second. The frame of reference of this thief, this man who is asking Jesus to do this, he's got some sort of understanding that Jesus is now the Messiah. So something happened in his heart to change him from somebody who mocked Jesus earlier on to somebody who is asking him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. That's only the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that happens. The Holy Spirit is the one to change really dead, stone-dead hearts into responsive hearts to the, to the heart of God. And so now this man's frame of reference is, well, he's Jewish. He's thinking the Messiah is going to come someday. And when the Messiah comes someday, he's going to rule and reign on the earth. And he's going to get rid of all these scuzzy Romans and we will be free once again. 
But Jesus' answer shocked him. It had to shock him because that was not Jesus' frame of reference. Jesus' frame of reference was this. You'll be with me today in my home, paradise. It'll also be your home. See you there. See you there. When that man took his last breath, the next thing he knew, he was in paradise with Jesus. At the end of his life, that last breath brought him into the presence of Christ in all of Jesus' glory. This is a, a stunning thing. He didn't know what he was asking, but we do. So what was the nature? What's the nature of that place like? That's a fourth question. What's the nature of the intermediate state? And what will our nature be like? Well, I think the word that best describes the intermediate state is the word home. Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 5. He used the word twice, and here's what he said. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. How many of you would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord? Of course. That is, that is what we really long for. Now, when I think about home, uh, in the home I grew up in, in the home that Nita and I have uh, lived in for quite some time with our daughters and now grown and all, you know, just home. When I think about home, I think about other things like a place of safety, where I can go at the end of a day and shut the drapes and just let the craziness of the world go away. That's home. I think of home as a place where there's great conversation and sometimes just wonderful quiet with the family. I think of home as a place of yeah, good meals, right? A nice bed to sleep in, peace has always characterized our home, even when there were difficult challenges and sicknesses and losses and trouble in our lives. Home was the place I could go, escape, and chill peacefully. Now, I know that's not home. That's not home life for everyone. I know that. There are very difficult circumstances in some homes. But I want to tell you on the basis and the authority of God's word that the intermediate state is like that and more, more that will be your home, a place of safety and a place of peace. So that's, that's the, the nature of that place. What's our nature like? Will we recognize one another? There's a man last night who came up after the service, and his wife had passed away a few years ago, and, and uh, he, he said to me, he said, do you think my wife will recognize me when we're in heaven? Will, will she be able to walk up to me and say, hi, how are you? It's so good to see you. Will, will that be the case? And I said, of course it will. Death doesn't erase our memories. We carry our personalities with us into the intermediate state. There's only one thing we don't carry with us into the intermediate state, and that's our sin and our fallen nature and our corruptions and our lousy attitudes. They all, those things are wiped away. Now, let me show you why they are wiped away. Hebrews chapter 12 says, 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. You come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When we get into the intermediate state, we are made perfect, and we are recognizable to each other. When you go home today, if you have time or sometime during this week, turn to Luke chapter 16 and read the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, Jesus uses this as a parable, but it's an interesting parable, and it's unlike any of the other parables that Jesus taught because he uses an actual name of a person, Lazarus, in this parable. And if you remember the story, Lazarus is a servant to this rich man who treats him miserably, and Lazarus dies, and then the rich man dies, and Lazarus goes into what the Old Testament called the bosom of Abraham, which is, you know, the paradise, equivalent of paradise. And, and, and the rich man, he, he doesn't go there. He goes to hell. And he's in such torment, he, 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 he asks that the Lord would let Lazarus dip his finger in a, a cool stream or some water, body of water, and just put out a fire on his tongue. And the Lord says, no, that can't happen. There's a huge gulf between the two of you, and it will not happen. Now, what's interesting about that, and was, now that's, that's a, in the framework of Luke's teaching. He is teaching about greed and not taking care of the needs of the poor, and especially those who are in your employment. That's the point. But in that story, we see something going on between the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man recognizes him. He sees him. He knows who he is. There is continuity of personality. There is recognition of one person to another person, and that is our nature as well in the intermediate state. The intermediate state, as we read in the, the Hebrews passage, is an amazing, it's called a mountain of grace, and everyone who enters the intermediate state is immediately met by heaven's welcoming party, a whole host of angels who are saying, come on in, the feast is fine. We're going to enjoy the company of one another, and all of the firstborn of God, which is the church, and God himself and Christ, and we are going to worship God together because of his great name. Our neighbors in the city of the living God will be our blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, the church of the firstborn, sons and daughters of God, and all of us free from all of those corruptions that we carry with us in this life. We're now perfected. Now, some of us get a little anxious, you know, when you move from one state to another. Uh, we've had opportunity to move to a few states, and and it's always like, well, what's going to be like when we get there? I mean, how am I going to, how am I going to fit in? Well, before moving to New England, uh, I was told, you're not going to fit in. See, those, those people are really standoffish. I said, that's all right. So am I. We'll fit in great. But I thought maybe this would be a problem for my wife. 
So we have this sense that maybe we won't fit in. Not in the intermediate state, brothers and sisters. In the intermediate state, we will fit in immediately because we are redeemed, just like everybody else who is there, children of God, who enjoy perfect conformity to the character and the nature of Christ in his holiness. He's our elder brother and our Savior. We will be like him. Jonathan, another thing that is, is true, will be true about us, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon, uh, maybe, what, 300 or more years ago, called Heaven, a World of Love. And in it, he, he said that the believers who go to the intermediate state, or in his, he was talking about new heavens and new earth, he said, they will love Christ with the love that God has for Christ. Now, think about that for a minute. Think about the love the Father has for the Son. We will have that love. We will share that love for Jesus. John 17, actually, Jesus prayed for it. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you sent me. I made you known to them, and I will continue to do so, here it is, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. The love you have for me may be in them. Now, when we are regenerated by the Spirit, born again, it awakens our spiritual taste for loving Christ, but it's still limited. Our love for Christ is still limited. It's limited by the corruptions of the fall, by the desires of the flesh, by the discouragements of the evil one that come our way on a daily basis. We find ourselves fighting against the vulnerabilities that we have to worldliness and sometimes our own laziness and cold hearts. But Jesus prayed that we'd be free from all those limitations. When we're coming to the mountain of grace, the city of the living God, there will be no more corruption that would hinder our love for God or for Jesus or for one another. Only immediate loving fellowship surpassing anything that we have experienced on this earth, immediate fellowship with the Son of God, and in a sin-free way. But there's one more thing we need to know about our nature in that time. Our nature in that time will long for something, just like the martyrs did in Revelation chapter 6. They were longing for something. What they were longing for, and everyone who is in the intermediate state will be longing for, is for the highest and ultimate hope of creation. The highest and ultimate hope in creation is the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. So just imagine Paul. He, he basically said this. He said, you know, this life is good. God fashioned our bodies to live in this world. But it's far better to live in that world, and we're going to live in that world as disembodied souls, and, and that's good. That'll be fine. That's the way God created it. But our ultimate hope is in the return of Christ. When our bodies are raised out of the grave, joined together with our souls forever in a new heaven and a new earth. That's the ultimate hope. <laughs> Praise God, right? You know, ever since moving out here, I've just got to, I, I know, I shouldn't say this. I'm going to say it anyway because that's what I do. Um, and my, my wife and I love to go 
walk through graveyards, and, I, and, I, and we, we, we go to these graveyards where we see, you know, if you can see the dates, they're all before 1776, and I wonder, what's it going to be like for those people to be resurrected in their new bodies and realize King George isn't around anymore? <laughs> this is America, buddy. <laughs> and I say, like, what's America? You didn't hear about the war, evidently. What war? I, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, and I probably shouldn't. This longing that we will have for the return of Christ is because God did not design a bodiless fellowship with Jesus in the city of the firstborn. We saw that longing in, in the martyrs in Revelation 6. They longed for Jesus to bring an end uh, to the corruption, the violence, and the ways of this corrupt world so that he would begin his rule and reign over creation. And that's the longing of everyone right now, right now in the intermediate state because God's ultimate goal for creation is the new heavens and the new earth. Perfect harmony and fellowship with God and with one another. You know all those snarky comments that we make to each other? We won't be doing that anymore. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more harming one another with our words, our attitudes, or our actions. Only perfect love and grace. Now let's ask them that, the last question, and that is this. What do we do about our anxiety about death? Death is a problem. We have to face it. Death is a problem. It has a solution. We always have to remember that death is God's enemy, and it's our enemy as well. Death does not belong in a living God's creation. Death is not something natural to humanity. So we have to ask, well, why is it here? And the answer, the answer is, uh, in, in, Romans, in Romans chapter 5, God created the universe with a moral standard, and Adam and Eve fell from that standard. And Paul said in Romans that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And that's the reason death comes for all of us, because all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned. That's uh, not only have we sinned, that's our condition. But for the believer, the sting of death is sin. But, but God's solution is to remove that sting of sin. In Hebrews 2, two verses 14 and 15, we see that death is an instrument of Satan who holds its power. So let's look at that verse. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through Christ's death, he removed that sting of death, that sting of sin. That sting is taken out. That sting no longer exists. That sting has been removed by the death of Christ in his blood forever to anyone, anyone who puts his or her trust in the saving work of Jesus' righteousness. Now, Satan's power over death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the Father of God. I'm sorry, let me try that again. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy 
to be destroyed is death. And he will be able to do that because of his resurrection. Death couldn't hold him in the grave. It was impossible. Now, you, you moms know this, right? You know that when your child wanted to be born, he or she was coming, and nothing was going to stop that, right? Right? You could be on your way to the hospital, and you might have to give birth in your car. When, when our second daughter was born, it was a rush job. We had to get to the hospital as fast as we could. They, they wheeled in Nita and put her in the birthing room, and, and all of a sudden, Nita says, she's coming. Go get a doctor. I ran, looking for anybody in a scrub. You got to come. And there was, thankfully, it was the doctor, and he came in and said, hi, my name is, and then Abby was born. <laughs> Nothing holds back that baby when that baby comes. And so when Jesus was going to walk out of that grave, even death couldn't hold him back. He walked out, tread over death, and the rest is history. Jesus' resurrection meant a decisive and final break with death in all of its power. Jesus can't die again, ever. Death will never have mastery over him, and everyone who believes in him, who is united to him, who is connected to him by faith, shares in that same decisive victory with Christ. Christ's death turned death, uh, Christ's resurrection actually, turned death into a doorway into heaven. When you um, lay your loved one down in the grave, you, you will grieve. You will be sorrowful. You will miss that person. But you should tell yourself at some point, tell yourself, because of Christ's resurrection and your faith in his blood, we will see each other again because you will. Instead of an enemy, death is now our friend. Death used to be an executioner, but now the gospel of Christ has turned death into a doorway into great gain. Paul said it, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So when you're anxious about death, Think about Christ as your only hope in life and death. Fix your mind on the eternal glory that you will receive in the day of Jesus Christ. That's where we live. God gives us many good things in this, in this life. He gives us many good things to enjoy. But the most profitable thing, the ultimate thing to enjoy, is the eternal perspective that we have to be with Christ and brothers and sisters in the new heaven and in the new earth. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if you aim at heaven, you will get earth and heaven together. But if you aim only at the earth, you will get neither heaven nor the earth. In other words, our focus, our ultimate aim, and our eternal perspective is always there. And then it makes us free to enjoy everything that God gives us along the way or, or to not regret losing things that God gives us along the way. It's all one, because that is my eternal home. Now, if you're anxious about dying, right? That's thinking about death, but what about dying? If you ever get anxious about dying, and, and you express it, say, the way R.C. Sproul expressed it, 
remind yourself that someone has already decisively dealt with your greatest enemy. We can lay our heads down on the pillow at night telling ourselves the story of the gospel that says Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's our comfort. The gospel is our pillow to rest on. Jesus is the first and the last. He's the living one. He died. He's alive forevermore. He holds the keys to death and hell. And and in his return, he will throw death and hell into the second lake, uh, into the lake of fire, which is the second death from which no one ever returns. It will be that easy for him. Now, I'm going to close in prayer because I I thought there might be people who have come over these three services from last night to today that might be anxious about their death or anxious about dying. And I want to pray for you that, that these kinds of texts will be your comfort when you think anxiously. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, we will, together we want to pray for those who are anxious about death, but they are united to Christ. Lord, you ordained the measure of our days before there was any one of them since before creation. We pray that you will help us to finish well this brief, this, this green tape life that Pastor Jamie talks often about, that you will help us to finish this brief life well and help us to run our race. And when accounting for our own mortality, let us meet you in each moment of sadness or loss or regret. When the long shadows of of fear cast over us, let us take comfort in this bright thought. Our hope is in you, in life and death. In your wisdom and your mercy, O God, you have given us many hours that were more than necessary for our hearts to grow warm to your love, um, for our pride to crumble beneath the weight of your mercies, for our minds to be convinced that we are your dearly beloved children, and for our hopes to grow firm and anchored in the promise of the new creation and the resurrection. So in light of these future glories, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will Help us to learn these truths deeply and fully, even in the midst of our present sorrows and anxieties, and that we will lean more surely on you, Lord Jesus, as our great shepherd. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son. And everybody said, Amen. Let's all stand and sing together before we leave.